episode 32. Magic Johnson's number, you know? And the rate of gravitational acceleration, 32 feet per second per second. Man, I don't know if I could play basketball under these conditions. Actually, on second thought, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm always up for a game, you know? Anyway, welcome to episode 32 of Etc. Etc. with Young Southpaw. That's moi. Me, if you ain't got your French tongue on. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about Thomas Pynchon's Vineland. Tommy P, you know? I mean, I've always had a soft spot for Vineland. I've been revisiting it through our guest's great new book about it. Thinking about the name, too, of course. You know, Vineland, Vinland, Leif Erikson setting foot in the new world. I mean, he was from Iceland. Though Vinland makes me think of Finland, you know? And as soon as you think of Finland, well, the mind goes straight to Hanoi Rocks, of course. I mean, I know we're all hoping for a new pension novel. I mean, personally, I'd like multiple books to come out. But imagine if the very next one to be released is about Leif Erikson's epic journey. Have it be another part of the Traverse family saga, you know, the clan from Vineland and against the day. And Leif Erikson is bringing like an early prototype of Hanoi rocks that he's, that he's just discovered on one or another of his voyages, you know. He's bringing them to the new world to create the very first version of the People's Republic of Rock and Roll. And then too, of course, Vinland makes me think of Vinnie Vincent from Kiss, you know? And like Bridgeport, Connecticut, where Vinnie Vincent is from, isn't too far from Vonlin, New Jersey. New Jersey always making me think of, you know, Jove, you know, John Bond and My Chemical Romance, of course. I mean, heck, bring those cats into this too. The ultimate monsters of rock cruise. Speaking of cats, I mean, are there any notable felines in Pynchon's books? I mean, he deals more with dogs, you know? Pugnacks, the learned English dog, all appointments canines. Well, I guess there's Manfred cats in V. But, like, it would be rad if there was a talking cat, too. And he was, like, a distant relation of Peter Chris from Kiss? Heck, has Pinchu never mentioned Kiss? That'd be rad if, like, Ace Fraley, you know, the spaceman and star child Paul Stanley, if they were, like, part of the time-traveling trespassers from against the day. And Gene Simmons, the demon, you know? Maxwell's demon and crying a lot 49. Like if that whole scene had taken place at a kiss show at Max's Kansas City in the future. And Vinny Vincent has the double V. And later he had the Vinny Vincent invasion. Actually, invasion has a V in it too. A triple V. Heck, that's one more than Rex Snoovel, you know, the cat who shot weed at men in Vineland. You know Pynchon's penchant for villains having V's in their name. I mean, I'm not saying Vinny Vincent is one, but I mean, how cool would it be to have a baddie in a novel with a, a giant gold onk painted on his face? So, like, if this new Pynchon novel has Leif Erikson bringing this 
glam rock spirit to the shores of the new world with a prototype Hanoi rocks, but there they encounter Vinny Vincent with all his V's setting about doing no good? Heck, bring the other Leaf Erickson into it too! You know Pynchon's love of mentioning films in his books? And Leif Erickson was in Kiss Them For Me! So Paul Stanley and the boys again, you know? But whoa! Susie and the Banshees too! I hope lots of this book takes place on the ships, you know, the long boats, you know? Like Vinnie Vincent has his own armada too. They're chasing each other across the high seas, and I would love it if they somehow ended up in Australia. Because like Pynchon's visited every continent in his novels except the big one down under. And think of the possibilities there, you know? ACDC? You remember Tesla being in against the day? And in excess? I would love to see the acronym he comes up with for that. And like Britney was in Bleeding Edge, so what about, what about Kylie Minogue? And whoa, if he's actually starting from Iceland, get Bjork on board. Heck, bring Leif Garrett into it too. And Mrs. Garrett. I know I've said it before, bring the whole cast of the Facts of Life in. Blair, Joe, Tootie, and Natalie. And of course, have it flash forward to 1984 when Vineland itself takes place. And the Facts of Life is still on prime time. And also, when Vinnie Vincent is in Kiss for Lick It Up. Of course, get your George Orwell, Eric Blair references in there now too. And Orwell, you know. Because they're going to have to be rowing pretty hard on those high seas. And while we're at it, why not get Linda Blair in on it as well? Make it a horror film. Have Selma Blair too. For the Witch Blair Project. Or you know, whatever else Pynchon might want to write about is fine with me too. I might work this into a full story one day, but for now, if you want to hear others like it, there's 52 other stories up on the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast. 52. A whole pack of cards, you know. Can't say I'm not playing with a full deck. You can find that podcast over at youngsouthpaw.com and at all your good podcast providers. But let's get to this week's episode of this podcast. It was a pleasure to talk some pension with Pete Coviello, whose new book on Vineland entitled Vineland Reread is out January 19th. I first became aware of Pete recently through his essay, The Novel and the Secret Police, on Boston Review. Article's a great read, man, and it deals with Vineland. So I started following Pete on Twitter and saw he's got a whole book coming out about Thomas Pynchon's novel, which we discuss at length today. So let's get to it. All right, we're here today with Pete Coviello. How you doing? I'm very well. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. Thank you. We're going to talk right. about your uh, upcoming book on Vineland, which I'm very excited about. But before uh, we get into it, I want to know how you discovered Pynchon. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, 
as you know, like a lot of people would be, there's a certain kind of dude who would like push pension on you, you know, as a kind of dude who like knew a lot and had a lot of information and things like that. And those were not always my dudes, you know? So yeah. I was sort of wary. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like there's a, there, like there's a, there's a certain quality of like a very dudish delectation around pension that was not really um, my thing. And so, you know, you heard of him because you're in school and you're reading things. But then, uh, like, after graduation, a clutch of my friends had moved to Chicago. I'd moved away and I came back and I got to see them. And that was a tremendous joy, you know, in the way of being 23 and seeing your friends that you haven't seen for a year. So you're, you're drunk all the time and you're just very happy to see each other. And what I realized was that these set of friends like John and Laura and Enrique... Uh, had all been reading this one book and that book was Vineland and they just were delighted by it in the way that you'd be delighted by like a record. You know what I mean? Like they just wanted to talk about it and they wanted to fight about what was best and what like track was coolest. And I was like, all right. And so the first pension, I think the first pension I ever read was Vineland, which was just shattering to me, not because I understood it or anything. I just thought it was so funny. I just could not like... There, there, there's not a book that I'd read that I'd laughed so hard and so like self-endangeringly. Like I thought I was going to rupture something internal, you know? And then after I read that, I read The Crying of Lot 49, which is, of course is smaller and easier to digest and then funny. And then I read Back to Vineland and then it sort of like lifted off from there. But Vineland was really my, my first immersive experience. And that was really with a handful of other people, you know, and it was a sort of like way to stay close to them. Oh, that's awesome. And I love yeah. how you say it's it's like getting into music and stuff, which you point out in the book a yeah. couple of times. Yeah, but, totally. It was very much like like you know, like you fight about a record that came out. This was like '94. We had lots of records to fight about. 23 yeah. years old as we were, you know. <laughs> what sort of stuff were you listening to? Oh my god! So it's '94. So we would have definitely been like the like demographically predictable indie rock kids that you'd imagine like we're definitely listening to like helium and pavement and stuff like that but we were in chicago so there was a scene sort of like the bloodshot record scene which was an insurgent country scene like the meat purveyors and john langford and the pine valley cosmonauts and robbie folks and stuff like that so we were also the young very young nico case so that was the sort of world that we were sort of uh i don't know drunkenly uh, uh strolling around in back then you know and Lounge Axe was going at that time, right? The Lounge Axe was completely going at that time. <laughs> oh my God, that was the It's exactly right. That was the era of the great shows at the Lounge Axe. Like Super Chunk has always been a tremendous favorite of mine. I saw, I believe that I saw in 98, maybe. The, the, like the most 90s show I ever saw was um, Neutral Milk Hotel opening for Super Chunk, which is like, again, like demographically ridiculous, but it was at Lounge Axe and it was a great joy. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you hit the big pension novels? Oh man, that's a good question. Probably. Yeah, that's a very good question. Cause I, I devoured Mason and Dixon when it came out. Cause how could I not? Like I study 18th and 19th century American literature and the book was just like, like designed in a lab to produce my joy. You know what I mean? It's like, it like a fever dream of all the great dissertations that were never written about 18th century America. So I just devoured that when it came out and just wanted more of it. And it was probably around then. It had to have been either right before or right after that I finally read 
uh, Gravity's Rainbow, which was certainly the last. Like I'd read um, V before that and everything like that. And I'd even read the collection of uh, uh, Juvenalia before that. And then I finally read Gravity's Rainbow. And I'm glad that it that I that I didn't go to it first. I'm glad I had a little more patience for its stoner comedy and stuff like that, as well as its like incredible um, um, synthesizing historical vision. Well, we we approached it in the exact opposite way. I started with oh, Gravity's and it was kind of like once you've been through part one of Gravity's Rainbow, you feel like you could do anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, it's true. You've run that particular kind of marathon. Yeah, no, I don't know that I could have. I I don't know that I would have been. Um, ready enough for it. I would, don't know that I, that its density would have carried me along, but like I developed a real taste just for the um, the particular quality of the sentences. You know that like like ornate Jamesian syntax wedded to like slangy profanity to to the slapstick. And once you get seduced by that, it can keep you afloat through a lot of things. You know. Oh yeah. And then I was just hooked. Then everything afterwards, then against the day, everything like that. I just wanted. I just wanted, you know, more and more. Also, because because I'd read that first book with those friends of mine, it was just like a way of being close to them because something would come out and we would all get it. And then, you know, we didn't live near each other. It was just a sort of way to be close to those those bygone uh, friends, you know. I, th- I think that's such an important aspect of literature and art in general, which you talk about in the book a lot, which is great because, I mean, most works of criticism don't really deal with that but the fact that you know these are integral parts of our lives that you know connect us to other people is a, a truly wonderful thing yeah man they're like records in that you know what i mean like um, i'm sure other people grew up with greater articulacy and greater emotional maturity than i did but like talking about things like bands and books and records was for me certainly and for a lot of my friends like the way we figured out how to love each other and how to tell each other that we loved each other by sustaining these like escalatingly inane conversations over decades you know yeah. and that and pension for me was you know for for better or worse for him was really at the center of those uh, you know as much as a nico case record or anything like that yeah you mentioned the sentences um and you mentioned this in your book as well, but I remember when I was reading Gravity's Rainbow for the first time, I was posting on Live Journal about it just because I had so many thoughts, you know, <laughs> this whole new world. Totally. And, and totally. a complete stranger commented that they ha- often just, they have it on their shelf and often they'll just take it down, open the book at random and read a page just to marvel at the beauty of the prose. Yeah, yeah. There's, if you If you develop a taste for that particular... A uh, uh, combination of that sort of like outblown syntax with like uh, agility around slanginess or just the, the 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 like quotidianness of daily speech that can just seduce you all the time. In my in my in my in my worst days, you know, like when I when I had bad times, I would go back to Vineland because it was so funny, kind of like a kid with a bedtime story. You know what I mean? Like just to be comforted by this particular passage that I knew was coming or just to be comforted by this set of sentences that I knew could deliver its reliable charge. I've often said that when you're pressed for time, I wish there was like a pill you could take that could compress (laughs) all the feelings of a novel into like, you know, three minutes for a pop song and you can just experience it, you know, when you really need it. (laughs) Get up to Northern California. There's gotta be some tech guys working to expropriate that now. There's just like the pill version. Come on, you gotta gotta think there's some startup funding in that. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Those are are, are totally the, you know, the people who would have been like, 
working at Yoyodyne Technologies, and they're they're definitely still there in in San Narciso making the pill that it'll digest the whole novel for sure. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a favorite of his books? Oh man, see, there's this. There, uh, it's funny you should ask. There's a there's a very very brilliant uh, writer and critic named Joshua Clover, who I write about a lot in the book, who I think is just an extraordinarily gifted poet and writer um, and a real fan of Pynchon. We were once in a bar, I don't remember where, and we were asking, we were doing the game, like list your favorite novels. And I remember him just looking at me like, it's amazing yours are in exact reverse order of what they should be. Um, (laughs) But I think for me, they're probably, Vineland I'm always going to cherish, though I would not harbor the, uh, I wouldn't venture the claim that it's the best. Mason and Dixon is for a lot of reasons, the most delighting to me. Um, Vineland is never going to not be up there with me. Um, The synoptic view of fascism as comporting with rather than a departure from capitalism, that is gravity's rainbow. Have to think a lot with too. I'm also, because, you know, you can teach it a lot. I'm a real sucker for the crying of Lot 49, even though Pynchon would himself sort of, sort of think somewhat less of it. Um, um, and, you know, Inherit Vice is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's sort of another California book. That's delightful. And there are, you know, uh, uh, Against the Day is a big baggy mess, but there are passages of it that are just sublime and stuff like that. Oh, man, that's so, my favorite yeah. novel of all time. Against the against day. the day for yeah, real. I love Fuck. it. See, you would be with my friend Clover. He was like, "Yeah, it's Grimes Rainbow against the day." What the fuck is anyway? It's fine. Yeah, you can have your. You know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you are not alone in that opinion. Yeah, I mean, it's just so sprawling, but a lot more accessible than Gravity's Rainbow. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah, and the I don't know the like the falling of the Campanile in Venice and the. The, the what is it the 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 event in where is it in Russia the oh the, the, um, Chernobyl that he the, the oh, Tungutskin no. event or something like that I like again I've lost myself in the that he calls the star the Chernobyl that event that you could see all over yeah the that was yeah yeah it's um, all very amazing the Mexican Revolution yeah and stuff yeah like more the, you know the uh, the rival, the Russian rival leader, air balloon leader to the yeah. you know, chums of chance is named Pajitnov and all the Tetris references where he's dropping bricks four by four. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. I read, I mean, I read bleeding edge when it came out too. bleeding edge is probably the only one that I haven't gone back to, to reread, which maybe I will at some point. Um, but it was, it's odd in being like, you know, like a contemporary historical fiction in that, you know? So that's, that was, that was, remarkable in its way a good new york book and yeah having thomas pinch and talk about britney spears was <laughs> it's something i was like yeah yeah it's true there's some stevie nicks appears in the book someplace and i was like uh all blessings happiness has arrived you know yeah that was that was very pleasing yeah but i think for me it would still be um i'm just a tremendous sucker for mason and dixon and just the labors of craft involved in tuning that sensibility, that sentence-wide sensibility that we're talking about um, to the rigors of 18th century prose. It was just a great, a great delight. Also a very tender-hearted book, you know? Yeah. Like a book about friendship. Yeah, yeah a book about, the, like, like Vineland in that way. Like it's a book on the one hand about like intimate life and friendship, but also 
about like the seizure of the planet by enlightenment rationality and its attachment to things like colonial expropriation and slavery. Like those, like the, the holding together of books that are historically exacting and critical and grim with like, like humane comedy. That's kind of the thing that I will always cherish in Pynchon. And then I think Vineland for all of its stoner messiness also does. That would be my deep claim for Vineland, you know? Oh yeah, it's a. I mean, it's it's probably the funniest. It's very funny no matter what, but it's also very heartfelt. Yeah, yeah, for real. Like like a book that manages to combine that degree of like political grief, like sorrow over the vanishing of a world of like insurgent mobilizations, um, while remaining like unfalteringly comic. You know what I mean? Like when I think of like it's like I think I when I tell students like Moby Dick is a comic novel about annihilation. Like this is a book that wants to be basically comic about like the seizure of American politics by counterinsurgent reaction, you know? And that's a pretty potent 1990 forecasting, you know, mm. of the of the whatever the neoliberalism to come. Um, so I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll still, for all of my admitting that it's messy and stonerish and slapstick, I will make strong cases for it, just the same. I love to, you know, start in your book and, you know, seeing the phrase spectacularly fucking funny. <laughs> yeah, that's like, like you don't want to sell that out. Like whatever you're going to say about pinch, whatever you're going to say about entropy, whatever you're going to say about it's like madcap referentiality. I don't think you want to lose track of the part that like a lot of it is just like slapstick stoner silliness, like the the checks in the mayo line. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> just stuff like that. Like he's turning sentences in part for the delight that can be kindled in them, and I wouldn't want to. I don't think displacing that does a particularly good service to what Pynchon is after, you know, or what he, what he, certainly what he produces. You know? And my favorite, the funniest part of Pynchon um, is always, whenever I see this phrase, it just delights me, is a great nation pursued its war on a botanical species. Yeah. Yeah. I find I would follow my friend, John. Like we had a lot of debates in the way of young people. Like what's our favorite scene in John's was always my beloved friend, John Dorr out here in Chicago. His was always the scene when Zoid is set up. And they've they've got like this enormous block, like a like seven hay bales of pressed marijuana that somehow got inside his little bungalow. There it stood mysteriously, like you know that that he that he just finds everything about that scene. Um, he finds delightful, you know. And the neighbors are all watching it, like what the fuck? It's good. And moments later, it was outside again. It's outside the house and no one knows how it got in it. You know, ready to, the phrase is something like ready to be hauled back to whatever spacious museum of drug abuse it had been borrowed from. Yeah, Yeah, very strong. Very strong. So what are some of your favorite comic moments? Oh my God. So there's that one. There really is just like the offhand stuff like, when uh, Zoid's daughter, Prairie, who I still think of as like my representative in the novel, the beginning of the novel, she's working at Bodhi Dharma Pizza, which she describes as like Zoid's mind. It's like, it's the California pizza concept gone terribly wrong. And he gives you like a paragraph describing the awfulness of this particular version of Californianized pizza. I find that immensely delightful. I find the checks in the mayo moment uh, immensely delightful. There's more like tender-hearted comic ones, like in the in the final, like the symphonic concluding chapter 
We greet the Thanatoids, who are like the people who cannot advance into death, many of them Vietnam vets, many of them wounded from the 60s. And they're all being awoken by by spirits awake, you know? And that's a very, 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 very moving moment to me. It's like comic and like, and you know, without giving too much away to people who haven't read the novel, like in its climactic moment, the phrase is, but I'm your father. I mean, holy shit. (laughs) That's very, very funny. That's very funny in a novel that takes place, you know, where uh, uh, whatever Return of the Jedi was filmed. That's just very... That's slaying to me. The the takeover of the flight, um, the, oh, the Kahuna yeah. Airlines. That was nuts. <laughs> totally nuts. And it's at Zoid's gig. Zoid is playing a keyboard on an in-flight band for flights that go from LA to, to, to Hawaii, mostly inhabited by um, uh, people lo- looking to escape their bad marriages in Los Angeles and have a vacation in Hawaii. So good. Yeah. Yeah. All this stuff I just couldn't quite believe was, you know, I was, I understood myself when I was 23 or whatever to be reading a serious novel and that a serious novel would expend itself so much in um, like stoner inventiveness and slapstick comedy was kind of amazing to me. It was just kind of like, you know, like when the, when the boys in Billy Barf and the Vomitones become Gino and the Paisans and play at the mafia wedding. I was incredibly seduced by that, you know? Yeah. I had a real weakness for it. And I love just how much he, like the check is in the mayo is, is forced, but there's something I love about that. Just getting in funny moments as much as you can. Yeah. And like there's other examples like uh, in Bleeding Edge. Do you remember the, uh, those meddling kids joke? What he's talking oh, about. Oh, I do not. I do not. He's talking about like Scooby goes. Uh, Central America or something like that, but he references Medellin, Colombia, which yeah. doesn't work if you say it out loud. But I still think there's something really wonderful that he yeah, just man. got the joke in there. Like the the refusal, as like as like high art and serious political thinker, the refusal to disavow the lowest of low forms, like the pun and the slapstick joke and the stupid song. Like and the, and the willingness to sort of fold that into a synthesizing and like a political version of the world is a, a great a great gift unto us. You know what I mean? Like a commitment to the comic that does neither forswears like a commitment to just like like clear eyed critique of empire. Those two things don't always go together with that kind of aplomb and grace. Yeah. And, and in Gravity's Rainbow, the various CIAs were wonderful as well. Like the yeah. Committee for yeah. Incandescent Novels. Yeah. Just- <laughs> I mean, all part, yeah, like all part of the like, like, yeah. The, the Gravity's Rainbow is the one I, it took me, I will say, you did better. It took me the longest to sort of like come into relation to it as, oh, it's a book that's like producing all these things, but it wants to make an argument about the continuity between international capital and fascism as against the tendency to think of fascism as like the, you know, the anomaly, the thing that broke off from, no, 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 it's an entire novel, entire like lunatic novel about their like co-articulation. That took me, man, that, you know, again, there are a lot of smarter readers than I am. Took me a long time to come around to that. And then it just started um, um, crackling with a different sort of clarity, you know? Yeah, the whole Byron the Bulb story is one of my favorite things in all literature. 
and like it's yeah. ridiculous but then again it's based in fact about the you know the phoebus cartel but it's you know this yeah. immortal light bulb the, telling a story the hist the there's a version of that too the wonderful passage in um we call it Mason and Dixon, where he's thinking about the clocks, where the clocks speak to one another and things like that. One of the things I wish I had a better talent for writing about is Pynchon's attunement. It makes me think of a poet like, I don't know, Elizabeth Bishop, his wonderful attunement to animals, to dogs. Like there's the there's the Desmond, the lost dog in Vineland who keeps coming back and gets in fact the final scene. Um, he has a wonderful attunement to like the dog's eye view of the world, which gets like its most comic expression in the learned English dog. Like at the beginning of Mason and Dixon, there's a dog that talks because of course there is in the age of wonders, you know? And he says, of course, potently, and he, someone Mason asks, well, may I, see your, may I see your master? And he says, I'm a British dog, sir. No man owns me. Like just a very, like a, a, a get a slapstick way to start up the entire question about empire that's going to run through the whole book. Yeah, and, and yeah. Pugnax in it against the day. Uh, the chums is yeah. uh, oh, he was great. Yeah, dying. That's right. That's right. That's right. Oh my god. Yeah, man. I, that's a book I got. I think I, I read it when it first came out, and then I read it again, and I was like, whoa. And I haven't gone back to that either. Maybe in this season of quarantine enclosure, be a good time to read those whatever fourteen hundred pages again. Yeah, <laughs> the audiobook is wonderful as well. Dick Hill does an oh, excellent far out, job. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's oh, fifty-three hours. <laughs> But, uh, it's Whoa. worth it. <laughs> Whoa, have you done other pension audiobooks? Uh, like I wonder are there I wonder if there are there must be. Someone must be out there having read Vineland or something like there, that. Uh, Vineland just came out this year, I believe. And Whoa. uh Mason and Dixon is now out, but when I wanted the audiobook, I had to do a interlibrary transfer to get 20 cassettes of it. Um, and, th- and this was like in 2009 or something. So like, you know, I had to then go find a tape player and then I digitized yeah. them. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. But, uh, that's complete. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I have not, I have not looked into that even in the least. Yeah. I think, I think most of them are in audiobook form and I think I've, I've, I've listened to them all. <laughs> except. Yeah. For <laughs> oh, that's great. You know, it's funny at the very beginning of the pandemic, like the book was done and I'd done the copy edits and I was like, I'm gonna go back and read V. I haven't read that in a while, and that was had its own sort of sort of pleasure. I read that along with his introduction to um, another Cornell novel that I've been down so long. It looks like up to me, um, which is book. a sweet introduction. That's a, his introduction is very, very, very um, yeah. It's a heartbreaker because yeah, I mean they were friends, and like Gravity's Rainbow is dedicated to for yeah, me. yeah. That's a wonderful book. Though. I want to revisit that one. That is, I mean, that's the sort of thing that like, like, I don't know, again, I, I right at the beginning of the book that I know Pynchon is a man in his eighties. Now it's unreasonable to hope for more novels, whatever the case, my deep hope more. is that like, I got a bunch of people in New York who are like proximate to him because they have kids the same way, or they know his agent slash wife, or they work for him at Penguin and stuff like that. And I would love to get him a copy of the book for no other purpose than to be like, dude, this is just a fan's notes. Like you have given me greatly more than I could have asked for from any particular uh, uh, object or artist. And part of what it's given me is like a way uh, to be held together with the people who are dearest to me, with my friends from forever. And I'm just, it's a expression of tremendous gratitude. Yeah, you, know? you totally should. It's a, it's a lovely <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You got to you got to imagine the guy gets a lot of that is what I would think. <laughs> you know. 
So yeah, yeah let's, let's talk about your book. How did this whole idea yeah. come about? Oh, well, so the good people at Columbia University Press, um, and I was working particularly with a man named Nicholas Dames, who's a lovely, lovely dude. Um, uh, he and Jane Davidson decided they wanted to start a series and they wanted it to be model on, you know, like the 33 and a third series. Yeah, I love those. Yeah, right. So they're all about like people writing about albums that move them a lot and writing in like um, like a vernacular idiom, like writing for, oh, you may have liked this book too. Here's a story about it. And they wanted to do that for single novels. And uh, Nicholas wrote to me, I don't know, some time ago and was like, hey man, would you be interested in this? And I was like, "Eh," you know, I was writing a couple other books, but then I just sent something off. I was like, you know what novel I think about a lot? I think a lot about Vineland. And so I said to him, he's like, oh, we'd love that. We'd love that. We'd love that. If you get it done, you could, it could be the inaugural. So I was like, all right. So I'd finished this other academic book about like 19th century sexuality and the Mormons. And I was like, I got a summer. I'm going to go hard at this book. And so I spent six months writing this book. And the point was really, um, which I appreciated a lot, like, like the 33 and a third books, not to not be critical, not to not have thoughtful things to say, but to do it in like a vernacular way Hmm. that like a generalist reader might be interested in. And uh, getting to do that appealed to me a lot. So that's how I, that's how I started writing the book. And then of course I had to figure out, okay, the fuck do I want to say about it? How do I want to arrange it? Um, And so we came upon like writing over different years of encounter from being a kid, from being a slightly less stupid kid to being a person alive in the like war on terror Bush era until now. So those are the four scenes of readerly uptake um, and in four different ways of taking up the book. And you also wrote an article recently. Yeah. Review. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been writing, you know, I sort of write these other sorts of pieces and I was like, okay, well, this summer, as you know, was one of people thinking a lot about what the police are. And Pynchon has a lot to say about the police. Indeed, in Vinland, he has a line about, he's, there's a character, a very sort of apolitical character named Weed Atman, who's a math professor. And it's 1969. And he wanders into a protest where the cops have been called. And the cops are just beating the shit out of some college kid. And he just like in very unornate sentences, no one was stopping them. He watched this and it, it, and Pynchon says the true nature of the police yeah. was being revealed to him. And the book like Vineland is very much a lot about like, like what happened to the literally armed struggles of the sixties when they were crushed by a by an armed struggle on the other side, like a counterinsurgent mobilization that we like to call the police or the security state. And it seemed to me like, oh, as we were watching, like, I don't know, one afternoon I went to one of the protests in Chicago and there were more riot cops than I'd ever seen in any one place. And it was fucking terrifying because I was there with the, you know, my friends and the people I believe in to protest. And we were like, well, if they want to kick the shit out of us, they will. And indeed they did it to others at the park. Anyway, all of which is to say, I was like, wow. I have this book about pension in, in I, that I've been thinking a lot about. And I think this book thinks a lot about um, the routing of American languages of freedom through the idiom of security and the sacralization of police power. Yeah, I got something to say about that. So I wrote this little piece this summer that was both about the, the book that's about to come out, Vinland, but also about its relevance toward this moment of like police counterinsurgency that was this summer. 
Mm. And that was fun. That was good to do. I got a lot of nice, you know, got a lot, got a lot of, a lot of warming response from the world, you know? Yeah. So, and it was so, good to be able to mobilize pension in that context. Cause like career wide anti-fascist is another thing you could say about Thomas Pynchon yeah. <laughs> along with like brilliant comedian and maker of sentences like career wide anti-fascist. So yeah. that was good. That was fun. And, and violent is so underappreciated, I think is probably the right word. Like uh, it kind of gets lost in comparison to the, the huge ones. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I mean, I was young. I can remember it coming out because I had this friend, you know, who bought it because he was all into Gravity's Rainbow and Pinchon and stuff like that. And he was really smart. But I can remember I was whatever I was, 18, 19 when it comes out and people just being like, this is not what was expected after Gravity's Rainbow. You know what I mean? This like um, uh, comic romp about the 60s, I think it was partially not was expected because I think people had heard of something like Mason and Dixon being in the works, yeah. um, which is, of course, a very different novel. Um, and so I can sort of understand the ways that it read weirdly, though I that was I was no real part of that. Um, but my sense is that it's like nothing is going to make it less messy and less slapstick. Um, but I think its reputation is going to rise and solidify because it's an incredibly smart book about the seizure of American power by police reaction. Um, and it thinks of the 60s, again, not as like a moment of, of, of inauguration or anything, but of one of like clarification and solidification. Um, and I think that, that is, that's not going to go away and people will find in Vineland a resource for thinking about like, oh my God, what happens in the exchange between like anti-fascist social movements and the police? Vineland's got a lot to say about that, you know? <laughs> and I think that'll that'll it would not surprise me if it got taken up more, not only because it like recurs in inherent vice and its characters show up um, in, of course, against the day is like the, the traverses are a family that inaugurates itself in. When I realized so, yeah. that it was the same. <laughs> it was just such a wonderful feeling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. From that, from that great story that gets told initially in Vineland about the, like the IWW and the labor activism, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, that's the, that I, I, I have no difficulty imagining that Vineland will be a book that gets taken up um, in terms other than those of like, what a weird exception, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but we'll so see. We talked about some of your favorite comic moments, but what are some of your, are your favorite moments in general? Like not just in Vineland, but in, through all of Pension. Like, oh, geez. The, the, God, there's a, there's a, a lot that I will, I will never not be a sucker for the talking dog. Um, uh, I will never not be a sucker for the the passages of um, um, Mason and Dixon uh, that take place in in, in Philadelphia uh, when uh, like a revolution is fomenting in a still slave holding country. My God, though, in Vineland, there's just an awful, awful a uh, lot of them like the evocation of the street battle in Berkeley where DL finds Frenessi um, is very moving and very beautiful to me. The occasional passages where the novel allows itself to wax lyrical about what it's like to be not just in a protest, but a protest that's turned into a street battle to be engaged in like anti-state militancy with your people. Like, 
it has a very moving to me vision that it wants to cling to of what like being a part of insurrectionary movements might be like. I think that's super, super, super valuable. And then there's all those like sweethearted moments. There's one moment I've never gotten over um, where the novel describes to us Zoid, like hapless stoner Zoid, unhealed, heartbroken Zoid, when Prairie is born. Remember this? And he's he's taking it exactly. He's like, there's a sweet moment where Zoid um, is, is anxious about his baby being born. So he's taking a tab of acid to watch her being born. And she's born and she looks at him with what he is certain is a look of recognition, like, oh, you again. Yeah. And oh. and that's the moment that sustains him through the difficulties of single parenthood, the difficulties of um, catches catch can life in Northern California. Um, and it's and it, there's a great phrase where Pynchon says something like, it's a moment he had to go back to um, when life was falling apart. Um, uh, when the, the the Klingons are closing and the warp engines out of control, you know, yeah. and it's such a sweet moment that that routes this grown up poignancy through the pop culture detritus of Zoid's mind and does so with absolute tender regard for Zoid. Yeah, you know, that's what I'd say. I guess the moments of like like a knock on pension, which I understand, but sort of don't take as seriously as others is that, well, he doesn't really have human characters. He's sort of cartoonish or he's sort of cold. I think that's wrong. But one of the things I'd say about uh, Vineland is that Vineland sustains this wonderful tenderness of regard toward even the most cartoonish characters. Um, And Zoid is only part of that, you know? He doesn't always succeed in getting everyone as in focus as everyone else, but the moments of tenderness really land for me. I mean, there's just so many characters. I mean, criticism of that against the day, I just, I don't agree with because there's like at least a dozen main characters who he does delve into their lives and what they're going through. But, you know, you can't go through that with every character in the book. (laughs) I mean, some of what that's about, and I write about this at the end of the Vineland book, some of what that about is like, Pynchon is not a, like if you go to a Pynchon novel watching the 19th century novel and its technologies of characters to just be reproduced for you, yeah, you're going to be fucking frustrated in part because it seems to me that Pynchon loves the 19th century novel. Like a person who names his narrator Wick's Cherry Coke is not a person whose love of Dickens is much in question. So he loves the 19th century novel, but not in a complacent or imitative way. He also thinks of the 19th century novel as something like complicit in the horrors of the Enlightenment. Like he thinks of the novel itself as a stepchild of the enlightenment along with enslavement and capitalization and enclosure and stuff like that. So he's quarreling with it. And that sort of dance around technologies of character seems to me part of that like career wide quarrel with the form of the novel that he both cherishes and also is not uh, particularly complacent about. And I think talking like talking bad about his forms of characterization is both with Pynchon, Pynchon says whatever's fair, like you get to do that. But I think there's different ways of imagining it. And for me, those have to do with like his sense of what the novel is, which is as a form he loves, but that's not an innocent form, not something he just wants to inherit blankly. So anyway, that's my minor polemic about that. (laughs) Do you remember the scene in Against the Day where uh, Cyprian Latewood is crossing the mountains with 
another guy like into Greece or something, and they it's not yeah. like they get along, but they they only like they have such a long journey. The only thing they can do is talk, uh, yeah. you know, to pass the time. And then when they get to where they're going, and he delivers uh, the person to their cousin, Cyprian has like such an enormous sense of what this other guy was about, and he's like, oh, I you know I meet the cousin. It's oh, I've heard so much about you, and he genuinely feels this connection. I just I, I thought that was wonderful. Yeah. In that. yeah, it's very it's 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 it, it's a moving passage. There's a scene like there's a knock on pigeon, which is a totally real one that I don't think is like I think is mostly right that like he is capable of of uh, of producing male intimacy in a way he's not female intimacy, and I think that's mostly right. There is in Vineland, however, a beautiful beautiful passage between Prairie and her teenage friend Che. Remember when when she she runs away for a while to visit her high school friend and they shoplift together. Oh, yes. <laughs> and that's when we have the memory of the great South Coast Plaza uh, uh, eyeshadow raid, which is a truly, truly wonderful moment. Um, and that's one of those scenes where, um, where uh, uh, I think his capacity um, to produce intimacy, not just among middle-aged men, shows itself. Shows itself somewhat, uh, though mostly in um, its after effects in DL and Frenessi but definitely in Prairie and her friend Che. Also, such a great name, Prairie. Such a, like, a lastingly great name, Prairie Gates. Yeah, and I forget who it was in the Pynchon's California collection who pointed out that uh, her link to America via, yeah. via that name. I thought, oh, I hadn't thought of that before. That, that's yeah, great. yeah, it's right. It's, it's, yeah, it's, 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 there's a lot to like I find myself very attached to Prairie not only because she was born approximately one year before I was and uh, you know she was involved in the same sort of music scenes in 1984 (laughs) what are some of your other favorite pension names I mean there's just so oh my god there's no end of it I mean obviously the 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 um the thing that that uh um like the the names that just sort of slayed me when you don't expect to see them coming you know like um oh what's the name of the guy who's the who becomes the marquis de sade oh wait, that's right he has a the marquis de sade has a wife named bloodwin and just for whatever reason like in this in the in the storm of sentences that produced the passage about the marquis de sade um and that's sod he's a he's a <laughs> it's a lawn care agency run by a reader of forbidden books his wife is bloodwin who specializes in costumes that stuff like that that it's just too good. That sort of like detuning of of uh, Dickensian names, you know. Uh, start also starting with a B. Uh, Doctor Blatnoid. I've had a lot of appreciation. Oh, that's right. That's right. Someone just Doctor posted. of Japonica. Yeah. Because uh, Blatnoid in Russian means criminal, and also oh. like <laughs> like I, I rewatched it again, and um, and then weirdly the next day someone posted on Facebook. Nothing about pension, but talking about that uh, term in Russian. And I was oh, like, that's fantastic. And then like it also gives the whole reference to the giant adenoid. And I was just like, oh, yeah. Great. You know, I will say like the movie, the movie of Inherent Vice was, I thought, quite good. Like yeah. those are not easy novels to turn into movies. And I thought it definitely got like its antic quality, its quality of pervasive dread. Like I thought it did extraordinarily well at like it understood um, um, the the textures of that novel in a way that I thought was was remarkable and very pleasing. Yeah, I really enjoy. I love the soundtrack too. That was really yeah. well done. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I'm mean, even now uh, for the press. They asked me to do a playlist for this oh, nice. for my book about Vineland. 
So um, it's it's leaning heavy toward California. You know, it's going to definitely start with California Uberales, and then we'll see where we go. You know, it'll have Fernese in it. It'll have yeah, Absolutely. it'll have definitely have some mid eighties um, trash punk in it as well. So when is your book out? My book is out. I don't really know because the pandemic has been sort of weird. Like it's it's copyright is 2020. So I'm expecting it in my hands at any time. I think it's official pub date has got to be in January. But of course, it just depends on when your local store can get it to you. So uh, hopefully by January there it'll be. I have a couple more like radio and in-store events sort of thing in the in the in the fall. But, you know. I will say it was just a pleasure. To, I'm very grateful to the folks at Columbia University Press because I'm very grateful to get to spend, you know, 50,000 words or whatever inside this book that you loved and trying to make that love both uh, uh, critical and lively, but also available to other people who might be interested without having to be fucking academics or anything like that. So yeah. that's been a, that was a pleasure to get to do. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for, for, for talking to me about Pynchon. Thank you for reading. I appreciate it more than I can tell you. All right. I really enjoyed that. I feel like we could have talked for many more hours about Pynchon and about music, too. Pete's got another book out that I've been eyeing called Long Players, A Love Story in 18 Songs. Looks great. And definitely pick up Violin Reread out January 19th on Columbia University Press. I love that they're doing books about books, like the 33 and a third series is about records. And follow Pete on Twitter at pcoviel, that's P-C-O-V-I-E-L-L. In Southpaw News, the Lost Archimedes album is streaming at Bandcamp, Apple Music, Amazon, and those. Only five bucks over at Bandcamp. The Quiet has called it far more interesting than your usual spoken word comedy album. And there's a bunch of story collections over on Bandcamp too, the Decalogue series. I'm working on a holiday story for the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast, which may very well be out by the time you hear this, so check it out. My friend Ben inspired me to riff on the idea, what if bands had advent calendars as merch? I think Guns N' Roses might be the ideal one, you know? Especially if theirs was 14 years long. And Rush, of course. I mean, with power windows. I mean, that's a given. There's a ton of stuff up over at youngsouthpaw.com. Videos and stories. So, you know, check it out. And if you're digging these episodes, please take a moment to share or review and subscribe. Much appreciated if you do. And check out the other episodes, too. I've had a bunch of great guests on recently. Greg Proops from Who's Live Anyway, Matt Osman from Suede, Steve Kilby from The Church, Amelia and Rob from Heavenly, and I got a bunch more lined up. So until then, happy holidays, y'all.